I really do apologize for breaking in on all your good fellowship. But we uh, need to begin the reading of God's Word. So we're going to read from Genesis chapter 39, chapter 39 of the book of Genesis. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to him and his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well built and handsome and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thin, thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them. This Hebrew slave has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. And she kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. This is the word of the Lord and for his word we give him thanks. Now we've been making a journey, a long journey through the book of Genesis and we started last September and uh, many months ago we planned that we would be here in chapter 39. Last week in chapter 37, we left our hero, Joseph, in a disaster zone. He'd been sold by his brothers to slave traders. He'd lost his home and his family. He is just 17 years of age. And he's making the journey in chains down to Egypt. It must have been a terrifying journey. Egypt was by now under the Hyksos, the 15th dynasty, and it was at the height of its powers. And Joseph would observe the unforgettable sights and sounds as he traveled in this slave caravan down the Nile Valley. The newly constructed pyramids, the hundreds of idols to the multiple gods of Egypt. From early morning, as he passed through the villages, he would hear the sound of pagan hymns. They were sung to waken up the gods. They would take these little idols that had been outside their houses, they would wash them, and dress them, and then they would give them breakfast as an offering for the day. These are the sights that he would see. Gods, little gods, everywhere. And then Joseph faced the humiliation of being put up for sale in the marketplace, waiting in the slave market, eventually sold to the highest bidder. He was purchased by a military officer uh, in Pharaoh's uh, court, a very high position, a man called Potiphar. The the name uh, of Potiphar means he whom Ra has given. Ra was one of these little gods. So the god that Potiphar worshipped was built into his name. His religion was woven into his life. And Joseph would know this as he entered the service of Potiphar. Now then, in verse 2, we read what we're looking for. You're looking for it and I'm looking for it. If this guy is 17 is first of all mugged by his brothers, dumped in a pit, brought out, sold, carried in chains. If we're saying God was with Joseph, where is he? Well, he's here. God was with Joseph and he prospered. How do we know when God is with somebody? Because they prosper. They are blessed. William Tyndale, in the very ancient version, pre the authorized version uh, has this about this verse the Lord was with Joseph and he was a lucky man he was prospered by God we read it three times in the chapter the Lord was with Joseph and twice we read the Lord made him prosper God is blessing this man in the workplace so much that his boss observes it the boss realizes that the the secret of Joseph's success That is, he doesn't worship a god called Ra. He worships at the moment Potiphar doesn't know who. But this god, the god of Joseph, brings blessing to the whole of the household. That's what it says. It's a great verse, isn't it? Verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph in the workplace. And he prospered. We're not going to talk about the workplace this morning. But I have a real heart for God in the workplace. You know that by now. And so it's a good workplace verse. When God is with you, your work prospers. And those around you and over you notice it. A few years ago, Jan and I led a house party to uh, 
Prague. We saw the sights of Prague and uh, the Czech Republic during the day, and in the evening we would come back, 50 of us, and share stories. One of the stories was from a guy called Ian who worked in the construction industry. His firm had been responsible for contributing to the construction of uh, T5 at London Airport. He said how one day he was at director level. He was uh, called in by the chairman with the other directors. They sat around the table. The chairman said, look, we've got a problem. The order book is going down and the money for work we've done isn't coming in. So I want you to go away over the weekend. We'll have another board meeting next week. Ian went away. Saturday, he went to a wedding. One of the hymns at the wedding was the hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation, which has this line. The Lord who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. He thought about it. The following morning, he went to church. And would you believe the opening hymn in the morning service was Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation. And it had this line, Who doth prosper thy work and defend thee. When they reconvened the board meeting the following week, the chairman said, any ideas? So they knew he was a Christian. He said, well, he said, I went to church twice last weekend and we sang the same hymn. And he told them what I've just told you. Nobody laughed. In the weeks and months that followed, the order book went up and the money started to come in. And many months later, they had another board meeting. And in a lighter moment, the chairman turned to Ian and said, have you been to church recently? Have you sung any good hymns recently? When God prospers you in the workplace, the whole workplace prospers. And they notice. You need to be encouraged by that. And so here we have Joseph, well-established, well-respected. He has the complete trust and confidence of his boss. Then, Mrs. Potiphar enters his life and his whole life is turned upside down. Now, the bulk of this chapter is to do with sexual temptation. In fact, the, the title of our sermon is The Holiness of God as a Character Former. We're looking at three studies in Joseph, and uh, this is the second one. There's a great New Testament verse which Joseph wouldn't know, but I'll give it to you. For some, it'll be a reminder. Others of you know this verse. It says this, Be holy, for God is holy. God never issues a command where he doesn't give enabling grace. So if that's his command, be holy, for I'm holy, then he'll give you the grace to be more and more a holy person. And that'll show in your character, because the holiness of God is a character former. We will see it embryonically in the life of Joseph this morning. Well, this chapter, in a moment I want to give you some lessons from Joseph on how to handle sexual temptation. And there are limitations to what we're going to share. To start with, I'm, uh, I'm a married man of 47 years. I'm a father, a granddad, and I'm a pensioner. So there's a limitation. I'm bringing all my experience to this passage. And uh, I'm not female. I'm not young. I'm not single. I've never had the experience of being a deceived spouse. So there are limits to where I can go as the preacher. But there's no limit to what God can do in your life. As we open God's word this morning, God may find you in a personally painful place. It may be that things that you had buried and forgotten suddenly come to the fore. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. And what you must be aware is when God puts us in a family like this, 
and exposes, as it were, things, then he wants you to talk and to share in the safety of a church family like Muckley. Sexual temptation is always on the agenda of every human being, whatever stage of life you're at. And succumbing to sexual temptation is a common experience. We face it in our own lives. We face it with the mess in the lives of other people. A few years ago, I spoke at a minister's conference uh, on this very passage. And after the conference, uh, a pastor wrote to me and gave me permission to quote from the letter. He said, if I can make a suggestion, I think you might need to add a section in your sermon on chapter 39 on what I call the false sense of entitlement. After all that Joseph had suffered from his brothers, he might easily have felt that he was due some pleasure in his life. And I have a feeling there's a common thread that runs through the experience of those who've given into temptation, like me, which is the idea that I have been working so hard without seeing any reward, and therefore I deserve some relief. Of course, it's a total deception, but there are always underlying reasons for taking the first steps. And another suggestion, he says, from the Joseph story might be the element of success in his work. I think I indicated you, to you, that's me, that for me, I was dimly thinking that since there was so much blessing flowing in my life, the sin I was involved in couldn't be that bad or the blessing wouldn't be that great. Total deception, I know. But then those who are deceived don't know they're being deceived. He goes on and he makes many other points in it. But the point I want to make to you now is I think this passage is deeply practical and relevant and timely. And I'm going to offer you seven lessons that we learn from the life and experience of Joseph. Here's the first. The first is this. Sexual temptation is unavoidable. That's verses 6 and 7. And Joseph was in his early 20s when Mrs. Potiphar begins to make passes at him. He's described in these verses in the same terms as his mother Rachel. Way back in Genesis 29, she was described as a woman with a lovely figure and a beautiful face. He's described as a man with a fine figure and a handsome face. It's the only time in the Old Testament that two people are given this double accolade. They are good-looking people. He was a good-looking young man. And his good looks made him both visible and vulnerable at the same time. Now, sexual temptation is unavoidable, whatever your looks. But let me name some myths which need to be busted by those who think they can avoid sexual temptation. Myth number one, it's not an issue for me, I live close to God. That's a myth. The bookends of this passage, chapter 39, is God was with Joseph. He lived very near to God. God prospered him. He prospered him in the house of Potiphar, and he prospered him when he was facing unjust charges in the prison. It wasn't a question of him wandering from God. God was with him. God was in his life. Sexual temptation is one of life's inevitable risks, even if you're walking close with God. Myth number two. Myth number two is those who say, I believe in sinless perfection. That once you become a Christian, you can no longer sin. Well, they may practice it elsewhere, but we don't practice or believe it here at Mutley. We do believe that sinless perfection is a gift, but it's not a gift given until you get to glory. The third myth is this. My church background keeps me safe. 
my personal theology, etc., etc. Well, let me tell you, Satan's no respecter of church background or theology. Baptist, Brethren, Pentecostal, Anglican, Catholic, Salvation Army. You can be baptized in the Spirit and speak in tongues. You can be strict in particular and sleep with the Bible under the pillow. You can hang the Ten Commandments by the back door and learn them off by heart. Every type of Christian, whatever their devotional practice, has experienced moral failure. Understand that. Myth number four. I'm happily married and therefore this area of sexual temptation is not my problem. It's a myth. Sexual temptation happens in the lives of the happily married. A couple of years ago, friends of ours in their 40s with four children asked if they could come and have a meal with us. Lived up country, the husband had just escaped from from very serious moral failure and they wanted to mend the fences in their marriage. Over the meal, they pondered with my wife and I, how on earth did we arrive in this situation? We were just listening. And they shared with one another how they had drifted apart. There were no rows. We were both tired. We had a grinding routine of work, church, busing people here and everywhere, family commitments. But there were no special evenings in the diary. We just kept the machine of family life going. And we made ourselves in so doing vulnerable to sexual temptation. Every one of us here right now needs to have 1 Corinthians 10:12 buried in the heart. Let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he falls. Here's the second lesson we learn from Joseph. That's in verses 8 and 9. That is to guard your relationship with God. Now Joseph was a man of faith. He loved God. God was with him. Uh, prospering him as well as protecting him. And he was propositioned by his boss's wife. She handed it to him, as it were, sex on a plate. And he gave her three reasons why he would not sleep with her. I think he had anticipated this approach. If you read the story carefully, for him to give such a studied answer, in his mind he must have said, if this ever happens to me, this is what I will say. Number one, he thought of Potiphar, his boss. He says, your husband has trusted me with everything in this house except you. He thought of her, her status. You're a married woman and you're the wife of my boss. And undergirding all this, he thought of God. If I did sleep with you as your offering, this would be a great wickedness and a sin against God. Now that doesn't emerge from anywhere. All of us need to have buried somewhere within us an armory that comes out on the day when the enemy comes in like a flood. The convictions reveal a very deep relationship with God. It's what the New Testament calls a righteousness revealed apart from the law. He's got no New Testament teaching of Jesus. The commandments are not yet on the scene. This is buried deep within him, a righteousness revealed apart from the law. Now, you and I have the commandments and we have the teaching of Jesus. In fact, we have the whole revelation of God here. If I had my time over again as a pastor, let me tell you what I'd do. I'll do it this morning. Hide God's word in your heart so you don't sin against him or yourself or others. I would make much more of getting into the word and not only getting into the word, but getting the word into here. I mean, the word of God is, is fit for every situation in life. But in this area where we're talking about this morning, there are so many practical passages 
Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 16. The six things that God hates. You should know those. All of us should know the six things that God hates. Because if God hates it, I hate it too. Luke chapter 4, you should see the practice of Jesus. It wasn't sexual temptation when the enemy came and for 40 days plagued him with temptation. But what did he do? He took the scriptures. And back to Satan, he quoted scripture. That practice should be deep within us. We hide God's word in our heart that we may quote against the enemy when he comes. 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 10, eight reasons for sexual purity. You won't find them in the tabloids tomorrow, but you will find them in God's word. Reasons that we need to bury deep within us. And Psalm 51 for the way back after we failed. We hide God's word in our hearts by discipline, by rote. We put it there so that rather like Joseph, we can guard our relationship with God. Just this week, I came across this great verse from Proverbs. Years ago, I read that Billy Graham, what a mighty man of God, probably preached to more people and been the means of bringing more people to Christ than any human being since the day of Jesus Christ. And even more than Jesus. Jesus says, greater things you will do. And in Billy Graham's life, that's true. He said this, years ago I read this, I read a chapter of Proverbs every day. Proverbs twenty-five, twenty-eight: Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls. Do you want to be that vulnerable in the world? You imagine a city like Plymouth with no defense, no police, no army, nothing outside. You're, you're vulnerable. This, this image of a, a broken down city without walls, anybody can run riot there. I don't want to be like that. And nor do you. I don't want to be vulnerable in God's will. Therefore, I'm going to guard my relationship with God by the help of his Holy Spirit, by the protection of his word. Here's the third. It's verse 10. Set clear boundaries in relationships. You see, verse 10 says that Potiphar's wife had a persistent policy of sexual harassment towards Joseph. It says day after day. It must have been a nightmare for Joseph as it is for you. He was miles from home. And when you're miles from home, who would know if he was sleeping with the wife of his boss? Joseph had no one to complain to and who would believe him anyway. Someone has put it well. As a man, it was tempting to say yes to Mrs. Potiphar. As a slave, it was dangerous to say no to her. But look at the awareness of Joseph. He refused to sleep with her. Then what does it say? And he refused to be with her. In other words, he set himself some boundaries. There are seasoned people here who cope with sexual harassment and you do it by setting boundaries. It's the Joseph way. It's the way of God for those who want to live holy lives. If you want to guard your character, keep your integrity, you set boundaries. A.D. Hart uh, speaking of this kind of thing in church life, says that Christians, if they're not careful, can be arrogant and alone. Arrogant in saying this would never happen to me and alone with no mirrors in their life. I need mirrors in my life. I need people who have said to me through the years, David, I'm holding up a mirror right now. Look in it. I need good mates 
I need a fantastic wife who makes me look in that mirror sometimes and say, can you see yourself? That's why God puts you in a family like this. And the problem is, the longer you go in the Christian life and the higher up whatever ladder you are, the fewer the mirrors. I might whisper to you at some point, who's the mirror in your life? I hope you'll have an answer. And because I can't see all of you, you should say it to one another. Who are the mirrors in your life? Who can really look you in the eye? I remember taking an African retreat for missionaries, oh, 20, 30 years ago. MAF pilots from all over the region were there. The senior MAF pilot, the top gun, if you like, of MAF. I remember when he testified to the fact that everybody had put him on such a high pedestal. He was such a fantastic Bible student, such a fantastic Christian, and such an ace pilot in difficult situations. The mirrors had gone. And he said, I want those mirrors back. He didn't use that language. It's the language I'm using now. But he was really saying, I'm lonely. And all of you think I'm walking so close with God, I don't need anybody else. But he did. And so do you. Guard your relationship with God. Set clear boundaries in those relationships. Here's the fourth thing. Guard the church from sexual predators. This is verses 11 and 12. You see, this woman had a strategy. It was a persistent strategy for getting Joseph into bed. The first advance for Joseph came out of the blue and it must have been quite flattering. Verse 7, sleep with me. But it was persistent. It says day after day, the tempting invitation, Joseph, sleep with me. And then verse 12 is the final ambush. It's a strategic thing. She's made sure the servants are not around. Joseph is alone in the house. She grabs him physically with the invitation, sleep with me. Derek Kidner, the Bible com commentator, has said this, for Joseph, all is lost or won in a moment. Because Potiphar's wife had been planning this very moment. She is a predator. There are other predators, male, but this happens to be female. She makes her bold approach. She grabs his clothes. He runs and leaves the vital evidence behind. Now, let me tell you, as a seasoned pastor, Church families like Mutley are always vulnerable in this area. Every church is, and Mutley is no exception. All of us are told, and leaders especially, to guard the flock of God, guard the church of God. What do you guard it from? You guard it from false teaching, and you guard it from immoral people. I've had experience of both. I've had experience of where wolves, Jesus uses the image of wolves, wolves come in. To attack the flock. We know what if you leave sheep defenseless on Dartmoor. We know what a wolf or a dog could do. And the church of God, if it's not guarded, is as defenseless as a flock of sheep. And in this passage, we're saying to one another, guard the flock of God. Guard Mutley Baptist Church from immoral people. I think of one church I was in where a young man suddenly arrived out of nowhere. He said he had worked for Global Missions told us amazing stories of what God had done through him and the mission around the world, and we were dazzled by his stories, especially one of our young single mums. She was a recent convert. She fell in love with him. He slept her. He made her pregnant. He walked off into the night, never to be seen again. He was a sexual predator, and we should have guarded the flock of God. Or the young woman who suddenly landed on us, another church, with an amazing testimony of how she became a Christian. I think when we first heard it, we thought, well, there's a book and a film to come out of this. We were dazzled by her stories 
of the miraculous. And then one by one, as the months went by, some of our young single guys would come up to the leadership and say she was clearly propositioning them. She was doing a Mrs. Potiphar. Everything was being handed on a plate to some of these guys. Good shepherds guard the flock of God from sexual predators, male and female. It's the sign of a healthy church. Number five. This is in verses 13 to 15. It's when private matters become public knowledge. You see, the sexual harassment had been a very private matter. Mrs. Potiphar's predatory plans and Joseph's defensive tactics. They're both private to them. But when her advances are rebuffed and she went public and tells the world, for the second time in his life, Joseph loses a coat. He lost a coat the first time when his brothers mugged him and the second time when he ran from Mrs. Potiphar's house. I like what the Puritan preacher has said on this. He says, Joseph may have lost his coat, but he kept his character. Her charges were untrue and unjust, and soon her charges will land Joseph in prison. Now, we're not handling here this morning the issue of injustice. That is a sermon in itself. I want you to focus, though, on what happens when private goes public. I wish I could play at this moment a, a DVD I don't have. It would be a composite DVD of people that, as a pastor, I've met through the years. Often when they have succumbed to sexual temptation and they share their story because they want to find a way back. I wish I could just put all that together. One image comes to my mind of a dad who had to resign from church leadership because he had acted foolishly. And he said, I've got to tell my kids, but I can't tell them on any other day except a Friday. Why a Friday? Because he wanted them to have the weekend to recover from the shock. So he told me graphically of how he gathered them at the end of the day. You know what kids are like on a Friday? Arrive home, school's out, it's weekend, and he has to sit them down. Give them the bad news. The shock, the anger, the speechlessness, the disappointment. He cried when he told me. And if I could put before you the composite DVD this morning, if you truly love your family, you would put out right now the fire of illicit passion today. Because God warns you right now that when private goes public, there are devastating consequences. Sometimes God's words come as a comfort. Sometimes it comes as a warning. I didn't choose this passage. We set this passage months ago. But here we are today, and here you are. Stan Gretz is a mate of mine whose death I mourn. Brilliant Canadian theologian. And uh, God called him home in his 40s. In his wisdom, humanly speaking, for us, all of us, it was too soon. He wrote a fantastic article about when a Christian fails. He says, when a Christian fails, it confirms the skepticism of the critics. Seekers are turned away. Believers are disillusioned. From a human perspective, it makes the death of Christ irrelevant. What does he mean by that? It means that every time we spread the table with the bread and wine 
And we say we do this until Jesus comes. Eating the bread, drinking the wine, taking into our bodies. It's a ritual. It's as if this is all irrelevant. And he says at the end of his article, we dare not allow this to happen. Amen. Number six. Number six is the role of others. That's in 16 to 20. Now, there were probably many others who knew what was happening, servants that we don't read about. But the significant other in this story is Joseph's boss, Mr. Potiphar. When he was told about what had happened by Mrs. Potiphar, he burned with rage. You saw how she shifted the blame. Your Hebrew slave that you brought into the house, having purchased him from the slave market, you know, you might have get, got better references because he's made sport of me. This is the way your slave has treated me. Now, the text is silent on the relationship they had as husband and wife. It tells us nothing about the shock he must have been in for almost 11 years. This young man has had God's hand upon him and Potiphar has prospered. He must have boasted when he got together in the officer's mess about you should have found the slave. You should meet the slave I found in the slave market. He is so proud of what's happened, so he's in total shock. But let me ask you this. You do realize at this moment he could have killed Joseph on the spot. He had the right within the slave-owner relationship, which has come down through the years. If a slave does something like that, kill him. It's a disease in the house. Why doesn't he? It's a very light sentence that he passes down for a major crime. Is it possible, just possible, that he doubts his wife's version of events? Was there a history of her doing this with other servants? I think the passage raises more questions than answers. But I'll tell you what. Pastoral experience tells us this, that where there is moral failure, the role of others is always relevant. You'll find this book somewhere. It's a, a testimony of a woman who was a serial adulterer and a recovering sex addict. She and her family had been regular churchgoers, but she drifted from God and church, led a very dissolute life, but eventually comes back as a prodigal, repents and is firmly installed in the family of God. But she writes her testimony after the Lord has brought her back. And she says this, My partner enabled my immoral behavior by his passive attitudes. I am responsible for what I did and deeply ashamed of that. But it would have helped if he had put his foot down and said, I'm not having this anymore. I expected holy anger, not sympathetic understanding. There are some very deep issues when we reflect seriously on this topic. And again, we may need to share and talk and pray with folk to help us understand this dynamic. Well, the chapter ends with Joseph committed to prison, the passage silent on how he might felt. We don't hear his views. The feeling of injustice, resentment at the injustice, of false accusations. All we read as the chapter closes, the Lord was with Joseph. And whatever he did, the Lord made it prosper. And so we come to the seventh lesson we learn. The seventh lesson is this, God does not abandon us when there's moral failure. And now this isn't from chapter 39. It's actually from chapter 38. Those who are shrewd and observant will notice we leapt from 37 straight to 39. 
So what is it with 38? Why is this deeply unsavory story included in the Bible? You'll all rush to read it when you get home. Let me summarize it for you. Chapter 38 is a story of incest, prostitution, and hypocrisy. Concerns Joseph's, one of his older brothers called Judah. He marries a Canaanite woman. They have three sons. And uh, the first son is given in marriage, as the custom of the day, uh, to a woman called Tamar. After a little while, the Bible tells us that uh, he was a wicked man and the Lord took him. He died. So after the custom of the day, the custom was, you know, the musical Seven Brides of Seven Brothers. Well, the custom was that the second son had to, in fact, sleep with the wife, the widow of the first brother, in order to make sure she had an heir because there was no social security. The social security was your children. Well, the second son, Onan, refused to do it. He spilled his seed on the ground and, and said more or less publicly, I don't want to be a sperm donor. And so refusing to sleep with the uh, sister-in-law, Tamar, as was the custom of the day, um, we now have the third son waiting in line. Well, by now, Judah says, well, hang on, this woman's bad luck. My first son has died. My second son refuses. I don't want anything to happen to the third. Two sons dead, one left. So he says, I know it's the custom of the day, but you cannot, Tamar, have this young man, Shelah, to sleep with you. So she has to go back to her family home, impoverished. Judah goes on for a few years, and his wife dies. He's a, an agricultural man, and he's attending a county show one day. And uh, in these county shows, they're not like our county shows. They, uh, they have cult prostitution because it was believed that if you slept with a prostitute, somehow it would give you a good harvest. So he sees this woman, who he doesn't realize is his daughter-in-law, Tamar. She's posing as a prostitute. She wants to entrap her father-in-law. So he says, sleep with me. I haven't got any money, but I'll send you something later. She says, I need a guarantee. So he gets out the equivalent of driving license and passport and passes it to her. He sleeps with her. Three months later, she discovers she's pregnant. He doesn't realize he's slept with his former daughter-in-law. And when the word comes that she's been living the life of a prostitute who's pregnant, pregnant, he goes bananas. He absolutely is furious and is angry. And he says, what on earth has happened here? Bring her out and burn her to death. Chapter 38, verse 24. They bring her out. And she produces the items that have been left as an IOU, the equivalent of the driving license and the passport. It was the man whose identity is born on these documents that slept with me. And Judah makes an immediate admission. She is more righteous than me since I broke the law and I didn't give her my son Shelah. His confession is a sign that God is working in him. So, on this seventh point, why is this story, unsavory, included in Scripture? Is it a literary device to show a contrast between bad boy Judah, good boy Joseph? There's more than that. I think what you're seeing very early on in Genesis is what God's heart is, and that is he wants to be numbered, counted as a sinner. Eventually, supremely on the cross, Jesus Christ will be counted as a sinner. And this is God very, very, very early on saying sinners are still my business. That even when there has been moral failure, I don't abandon you. When you turn to the 
family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Count four lines down. And do you know the names that you come across? Judah and Tamar gave birth to twins. One was called Perez and the other one was called Zephyr. And four lines into the genealogy of Jesus where the gospel of Matthew opens, where the New Testament opens, are these four people. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I'll tell you what, if I was writing the story of the New Testament and the history of salvation, I think I would gloss over this, wouldn't you? But they're there. (laughs) And when you get to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, there's Judah's name again, linked with Jesus. The lion of the tribe of Judah, a title given to Jesus. By the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation, this wonderful vision of the holy city, perfect city, perfect dimensions, perfect life. And the names of the Old Testament tribes are there, built into the stone. Whose name is there? Judah. Because by the grace of God, the Judas and the Tamars and the Mrs. Potiphar's and whoever may be in church this morning, by God's grace to those who have repentant hearts who want to find their way back, there is room for you, my friend. There's an old hymn that we sometimes sing at Muttley and when it's sung well, it lifts the roof off. It's called, To God Be the Glory. Great things he has done. I'm often speechless and find it difficult to sing a couple of lines in that hymn. Do you know what they are? The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. And you might sit there this morning and say to me, David, is that really true? Is it really true that the vilest offender who truly believes that moment a pardon from Jesus receives? It is true, friend. By God's grace, it's true this morning. It's true right now. It's true for each of us by God's grace. Let's pray together. Now, it's possible that God has spoken to you more personally than you'd ever anticipated through his word this morning. And what we have at Muttley is we have an immediate help at hand. You can come and sit in the front row and pray with somebody. You can speak to one of the stewards and say, I want to book an appointment with one of the pastoral team this week to talk things through. Lord, we just bow before you, the holy God, called to be holy people, but without your grace, will never make this journey. Your word is a difficult word to us this morning, but thank you if it's given us guidelines for how to handle sexual temptation in a very sexual world. We pray for one another. We pray for where there has been failure or where because of somebody else's failure, our own lives have been messed up. And we just ask that you will build hope into our lives that what may appear the strictness of your word will actually be the freedom of your word. So bring us, we pray, into a good place. Bring us from where we are right now into a much better place, a place of cleanness, a place where a past has been dealt with and a power has been provided. These are our prayers. We offer them as we offer our love to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. 
Amen.